Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Please take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 will be our study this morning. We're diving back into this exposition of this great gospel. And it's been a joy. Hopefully it has been for you to be able to just allow the Scriptures just to marinate in our hearts, looking at Christ, knowing of His goodness and His kindness. The title of today's sermon is, He Does All Things Well. Let me read the inspired and holy written Word of God. Starting in verse 31, it reads, And he again, again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they implored him to lay his hands on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with a saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Epitha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and for a narrative that points to your goodness and kindness. I think the danger, Lord, sometimes for us is who, who have been saved by your grace, and we read the text and we see these miracles, that we can come numb to these, that we, they become normal to us. Something expected. And yet, Father, may the, the reality of that not be one that, that causes us to be still in our love for you. We marvel at your grace. We marvel at your divine power. It truly shows that you are God. Be able to make the deaf hear and the mute to speak. May we too, as we go through this, this passage, walk away with a resounding understanding that you do all things well. Be with your preacher, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
as we dive back into the exposition of our gospel, I, I'm reminded, reminded of the perfect nature of Christ. Everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did was always good, righteous, and with kindness. Not a single ounce of error, not a single notion of evil, always good, always right. These right thoughts about God come from him. When we think about him, not only does it display in his actions, but, but the Lord himself has spoken much of what we are to think about him. I think of such passages like Exodus chapter 34. You can look at the screen. Where the Lord tells us about his character. It says there, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty and punish, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Truth, the reality of who he is, compassionate, kind, loving, yet also with the reality that he does come with judgment, that the guilty are, are not left unpunished. These overwhelming reality helps us think about his character, of his goodness and kindness. And what's remarkable when we go through the Gospels is that, that often that we understand his character by what has been taught and what's been shown, but he often shows that in his interacting with others, where people see the hand of God move and they're healed and the miracles and the sickness runs. So much so that the people testify of his goodness and kindness in their life. I mean, the scriptures are littered with, with praise of adoration and gratefulness, of, of great testimony of God's moving in their life. I, I think of Psalm 145, verse 9, where it says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are all are, are all over all of his works. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see. That the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And then the climax in the New Testament, we understand in Romans 8, 28, a, a very familiar verse for us as we, we travel and, and walk this earth in the midst of life, in the midst of struggles where it says there, Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. A simple theology, right? God is good. The psalmist, the apostle Paul, Mark, for that matter, every born again believer in Christ Jesus has experienced the goodness of Christ. Why? Because his kindness and goodness he freely gives to the repentant sinner. He desires to restore through his salvation a right relationship between you and God. 
And then it gets sweeter. It doesn't end there. Not only does God display his goodness and kindness in sending Jesus Christ, who himself is fully God, and displays these attributes in the midst of people's lives, there's going to be a day. There's going to be a day where all of the Godhead, the Trinity, will be on display for eternity, and everything will be made right and complete and good. We call that heaven, an eternal place where an eternal king reigns with his people rejoicing because of the attributes and the kindness and the goodness of the king. And because of that coming goodness, manifesting itself in Christ, we can't help but think about Christ. I mean, we read about heaven and we are just enamored about the time where we can't wait to get there. Especially when life throws curveballs and our bodies start to break down and sickness overcomes us and persecution comes trying to steal the joy. But no, no, you cannot steal the joy of the one who knows Christ and looking for eternity. It's hard not to think about heaven. We think about the location. We think about his presence. We think about all those saints gathered around the throne worshiping Christ. We long for that day. The expectation of heaven revolves around the truth where, where everything is made right, good, complete, and perfect. Especially in light of a world that is not right, complete and far from being perfect. Heaven gains our attention in light of the trials, struggles, sickness, disease that we have in this world. We understand that this world is broken, sinful. Evil is called good. Good is called evil. If everything was right, listen, I mean, don't you, this is the Lord's plan. You got to understand that, right? If everything was right in this world and everything was going well for you in this life, you wouldn't long for that place. I'm a little dismayed by preachers who who try to make this life a good life. Listen, this life sucks, okay? Can I use that vernacular? Heaven. This is exactly what was on the hearts of even the first century believers. You think about the people that that surrounded Christ. They, They don't have the experiences or the technology that you and I have today. You realize in in Christ's day, there was a sense of desperation. Life was fragile. Such things as a common cold can take your life. The flu, strep throat, infection, all those challenged earthly life and often cut their life short. They didn't have the AIDS like we have today. You think about, I'm wearing glasses. They, they help me see. You think about hearing aids. They help you hear. Anti- antibiotics that, that, that stop the spread of infection. 
For them, life was fragile and they knew it. Yet for us, all those aids and, and, and the medicine, we, we, we look and try to hold on to a life that's, that, that is going to end. We have all these aids, these medicines, and we look at life often and we ignore it. To have a sickness or disease or a handicap was to, to have little hope or, or no joy in the Lord's day. So in order for Jesus to convince and prove that he is indeed is God, who is, who is the Messiah, who is the anointed one, who is God in the flesh, the king of eternal, I mean, he regularly displayed his kindness and goodness in how he dealt with people. He displayed a little taste of heaven on earth. Something that would, they would eventually die, right? Even though that they would be healed, they would eventually die. But he was giving us an idea of what eternal life is going to look like. In his healing and miracles, Jesus demonstrated that he could make the sick well, the disease healthy, and the lame to walk, and the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, all those things. And all that was a, was a foretaste of what heaven will be in its fullness. As we read in Isaiah 35, heaven where there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more tears. And Jesus' miracles gave hope. They, they pointed to the reality that he is the Messiah, that he is God, and he's the one who can heal and only heal. All of this was like a movie trailer. It was, it was the setup of what was going to be a prelude. He showed the truth that he is the king and will reign as the king in heaven. So no wonder when we get to the end of our passage that the response of the people after seeing Jesus displaying his goodness and his kindness and displaying power over creation, that they would say, in verse 37, they were utterly astonished, saying he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He does all things well. Now, at first cursory reading, you could look at that and say, okay, that a boy Jesus, right? We pat him on the back. Listen, in the Greek, this is so profound. you got to understand that what this text is saying and what these people came to conclusion was that Jesus did everything in an excellent way, that there was no comparison. There was no parallel. Jesus was up here, and every time he spoke, every time he did things, it was at this supportive, this high, exalted thing. Everything he did was with excellence. Nothing can compare. Nothing can even come close. All of his actions, all of his words was so definitive divine that, that they knew that they were standing in the presence of God. 
And so the conclusion at the end of our passage this morning is something that, that we, I think, take for, for granted to some degree. A little application before we dive into the text, the whole idea of sometimes we look at Jesus and, and we just kind of, we, we like the safety belt of Jesus. But, but listen, you are dealing with the King of Kings who does all things well and with excellence. He is your Savior and your Lord. It's a pretty interesting narrative as we, we walk through this. And I, I gave you an outline to kind of just put down and jot down some truth. And Mark does this. He gives us a front row seat of, of how this unfolds. He gives us three scenes that, that display Jesus' divine excellence. That not only confirms that he does all things well, but causes us to be in awe. And builds a deeper love for him when we think about him. Three scenes that display his divine excellence. The first scene is in verse 31 and 32. And this is an appointed occasion, right? God is sovereign. All these things, all these things are coming together. The problems of God colliding with life. And we see this in verse 31, an appointed occasion. A situation arises. Look at verse 31 again. It says, it reads, Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. I mean, this verse is context, right? It gives us an understanding. This is not just some kind of spiritual thoughts that, oh, we got a Savior who does great things. This is living, actually happening kind of things. Remember what we saw a couple weeks ago. This falls on the heels of, of the Syrophoenician woman who, who, that Jesus healed, cast out. Her daughter, the demons in her daughter's life, spoke it from a distance. We find Jesus deep in Gentile territory. We know the reason why he, he wanted to be and leave Israel because the, the, I mean, opposition was growing to an extent where he knew he needed to teach his disciples. Scripture tells us that he, he wanted to get away, he wanted to get alone. Remember, the place that he finds himself in, our, in the context is, is that he is f the furthest way a person could walk until they hit water from Israel. And so after casting out the demon and the daughter of the woman who came with faith, Mark tells us he went from Tyre, he goes through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Now, if you are an atlas geek and you were to look at going on here, his travel and his routes, it's interesting to me how he went about and what he did. Literally, he, he, he travels. It would be much like if you were trying to, to go to Texas and you started out in L.A., but you went up through the Northwest to get down to Texas. And so, listen, it's interesting to me how the liberals and even critical uh, Theorists, they, they, they approach the scriptures and they say, listen, the writer doesn't know his geography. Listen, God knows what he's doing, right? He's sovereign. He knows exactly why he's taking the route that he does. But here he is. He's in this region of Decapolis, surrounded by many Gentiles. His 12 disciples are with him. 
He's trying to find a place where he can teach them. And verse 32 tells us the crowd knows that they are there, right? They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. The people stirred. They have the Messiah in their presence. They begin to hear that Jesus is in their, their area, and they responded by, by bringing their loved ones to him so he could heal them. Now, a quick question. I just want to connect Scripture for you a little bit here. A quick question. How did these people deep in Gentile lands hear that Jesus could heal you remember in Mark chapter 5 where, where Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee and he lands in the area of the Gerasenes? And there happened to be a welcoming gentleman, <laughs> far from a gentleman, right? Possessed with a legion of demons. And he had this interaction, and Jesus cast out the demons into the pigs and displayed his grace and mercy again to Gentiles. The result of that, the man who was saved, who had the demons cast out, he wanted to follow Christ. Let me remind you what Mark 5.19 says. You can throw it up on the screen there, Steph. It says there he did not, Jesus did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Verse 20, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis. Ah, Mark chapter 7, where was Jesus at? Decapolis. He went to proclaim in Decapolis what, a great, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was, was amazed. I mean, this guy had, a, had already had a testimony. He could enter a room and people could look at him and say, that's the guy that Jesus cast out all those demons. That's the guy that was, that was saved. And he's not rejoicing in his goodness. He, he, he was, and I proposed back then, the first evangelist sent out by Christ to go out and proclaim the goodness and greatness of Christ. And here he is, he's proclaiming this in front of his people. Do you think the people heard Absolutely they did. He evangelized and told of the great things that Jesus had done for him. And the people saw the change, transformed, born-again life in this man. And so you better believe they took notice when they heard that Jesus was near them. That this miracle worker, the Messiah, was again in their area. They, they, they jumped at the chance to, to go and see him and bring those who were lame to him, wanting his goodness and his kindness to be extended. By the way, Mark is the only gospel that, that gives us the account of this interaction with this deaf and mute man. However, in, in, in Matthew's gospel, he gives a summary of, of Jesus' time in this area. And I think it's interesting because he kind of just lumps a lot of things of what Christ has done. We don't have a lot of detail of what Christ was doing in Tyre and Sidon. We do know that we have this, and even in filling over, spilling over in chapter 8, we got another feeding of 4,000, and then we get a blind man healed. But those are all the things that we see, or at least was recorded for us. 
But look at Matthew 15 at the screen, 15, 29, 31. Matthew records for us, saying, Departing from there, Jesus went along the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and a large crowd came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking and the blind seeing. And it ends with this, and they glorified the God of Israel. Why is that so important? They're Gentiles. They have God's galore. They have idols. They have recognized, they, they glorified the God of Israel. They recognized that he was the Messiah. I mean, I look at that just simple phrase, and it, it just tells us, it speaks that they heard the message of Christ, saw the works of Christ, and they responded with praise. Get this. They recognized Jesus long before the Jews ever did. What was hard for the Jews to swallow about this Messiah, the challenge of the religious authorities of the day, the fact that he was the anointed one, the Messiah, the Gentiles quickly got it. And so back in Mark 7, they bring this man to Jesus with a desire to have him display his goodness and kindness. And they wanted him. The text even says, implored him, begging him to lay his hands on him. Scene two, here comes the miracle, right? An overwhelming display of his divine excellence in verses 33 to 35. Look at verse 33. It says, Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Epitha, that is, be opened. Jesus separates this man from the crowd. No doubt his disciples are there. Mark gives us an account. Peter's there. All these guys are there. The man was deaf. Verse 35 tells us that he had a speech impediment. He couldn't be understood. This man was trapped with no ability to hear. And he couldn't communicate his needs to be understood. Doing a little research looking at the nature of what it means to be deaf. I mean, you talk about, I mean, we put muffles on our ears. And I put earplugs at night in my ears. And it's just one of those things just to, just to drown out all the noise. But you hear much like what you do with, you put a she-shell up to your ear. It's that, that hollow just sound. Nothing penetrating, no noise, not necessarily understanding what's going on around you. Medical studies tells us that it would be better to be blind than to be deaf. Yet here he is in front of the only one who can heal him. 
And then it gets interesting. Verse 33 says, Jesus put his fingers into his ears. Now, doesn't that seem odd? I mean, he's literally taking his fingers and, and, and grabbing his attention. It makes sense, however, from the perspective of the one who's deaf. Jesus has given him a visual of what exactly what he's going to do to him. And so he puts his, his fingers into his ears. The man would clearly understand. There was a reason why the people brought him to, to Jesus. You almost get the sense that he was willing for the Lord to touch him. But then it gets weird, at least from our perspective, right? It says that Jesus spat in his hand, spit in his hand. And he takes the saliva and touches his tongue. The man was seeing all of this. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was wanting him to see. I mean, could Jesus heal this man with, with words? We already saw that earlier, but by, by casting out demons, not even in the presence of the daughter who had the demons. I mean, you talk about the kindness of the shepherd to be able to, to touch and to heal. Jesus was, was showing him he's going to heal him. Verse 34, looking to heaven, up to heaven with a deep sigh. This is just connotating the whole idea, you know, symbolizing he's praying here. How often do we pray? Do we take a deep breath and settle our hearts? Then it says he speaks to the man who can't hear. He says to him, epitha. By the way, that's Aramaic. Gentiles would have no idea what he was saying. Mark gives us the interpretation. That is, be opened. Literally in the Greek, it has the idea of, of, of be loosened, be unloosed. And then verse 35, the display in the glory of Christ, and his ears were opened. And the impediment of his tongue was removed. And Mark adds, he and he began speaking plainly. Utterly divine. God is moving, God is doing, God is showing that he has power all, all these elements that ever came before him. He says, be open. And the man was able to hear and now to be understood. He could convey his heart. He, he, he no doubt was able to rejoice. He could hear the people and the crowd and the noises for the first time. His senses were no doubt on high alert. I mean, the picture that I have imagined here is, is like, have you ever done this where you opened up your computer and you're trying to get sound, you're trying to get something, you're watching a sermon, whatever the case may be, and I'm pushing the volume up and up and up, and you realize what? The mute is still on. And so then you push it, and then what happens? You, you, everything is, is, I mean, this is the picture that we see. Sound, 
for the first time being experienced an explosion of sounds. Don't miss what it says at the end of verse 35. It says there that he began speaking plainly. Have no idea what he said. Can you imagine his first words? I, I think, to some degree, I think it was probably gratitude, probably tears running down his face. I mean, we're left in the silent here, but, but here he is speaking plainly. And in all honesty, I think he was probably much like what we read in the Psalms, a person experiencing the goodness and kindness of God. He was grateful and thankful. I mean, what a Savior, right? I mean, you read texts like this and you're just in awe. I also look at it from a perspective of, of his love for somebody in need. You understand that Jesus is the same shepherd as he was then as he is today. He is the great shepherd of our souls. He cares for you. One verse that I often share when I visit hospital rooms at the hospital is 1 Peter 5, 7. 1 Peter 5, 7 simply says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. It means much to the one who knows Christ to be able to cast all these issues of life to him. Jesus knows, he understands. He understands your physical elements. He understands exactly what kind of trials you're going through. He is the great shepherd. And then I marvel, knowing that he does all things well and the completeness of this life leads us to the glorified life with eternity in heaven and there it will be done all things well for eternity. a day where he will reign, a day where no one will have physical ailments, a day where there will be no tears. This brings us to the third scene, which is a surprising response, right, to his divine excellence. I mean, Jesus at times tells people to go out and share the gospel, and then he tells people most often that you rein it in. Don't, don't share it at all, at all, what has just happened. And so we see a surprising response to his divine excellence. Verse 36 again, and he gave them orders not to tell anyone. I mean, how, I mean, this is like a kid on Christmas knowing, I mean, he can't wait. Listen, I'm bad. My kids know this. I have to wait until almost the end to buy the gifts because I am so willing to tell them what I got them for Christmas. I think this is the same thing. You get healed and you just, how can you? How can you be quiet? The hand of God moves into your life, and how can you be quiet? But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. I think there's grace there. I think there's grace there. He, he is, I think he understands what is going on within the soul, and 
But I guess the question is, why does he tell people not to share of his goodness and kindness? If you were to turn forward to Mark chapter 9, we get an understanding of why, what's going on here. Mark 9, verse 9. Set the scene, transfiguration. Disciples see all this stuff going on. We hear the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. As he walked the earth, as he was displaying his goodness and kindness, everything was heading towards the cross. Everything was heading towards the grave. Everything was heading towards the resurrection. It had not yet happened. From his perspective, he wanted everything to be unleashed with the praise once that event happened. Why? Because the Savior has come. Everything was complete. And salvation can be rejoiced. They struggled with that. They couldn't hold it in. They were blown away by his grace, his kindness. And in turn, they turned to him in praise. They were, Scripture says, utterly astonished. And they commented that he has done all things well. He makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. I have great joy when I see somebody who has a physical ailment. Maybe I'm just, I think of individuals like Eric, um, I forget her name, Joni, I was going to say, yeah, confined to a wheelchair. And yet such joy, she understands what eternal life looks like and what it will be. I, I rejoice because everything will be set free. I heard her say one time, the first thing that she's going to do is, without any confinements of the wheelchairs, is to do the Snoopy dance. All this to say, how does Isaiah 35 connect to our passage this morning? The disciples would have understood this. The Gentiles, not so much. Mark connects what Jesus has done here to this man, to what the prophecy says in Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. We read it this morning. Let me remind you what it says there. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will, will leap like a deer, and the, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Mark is pointing to the connection that Jesus, the Messiah, continually is showing. I mean, how much more proof do you need? Testimony, prophecy fulfilled, miracles being displayed, truth being told. I mean, Mark wants us to get it. He wants us to draw this connection back to Isaiah 35. He's telling us that Jesus is, is he is the one that is going to perfect all this. 
And what Isaiah 35 said in its completeness, this is just a taste. Look at what he is doing. He's making the mute speak and the deaf to hear. How can we not, as born-again believers, long for heaven? I mean, I just, I walk, push back from a text like this. How can we not just long for what is right and what is good? Where the king rules and reigns. What's a quick takeaway from our narrative this morning? I think you very clearly heard it in what I preached When you think about God, when you think about Jesus, when you think about your Lord and Savior, understand that he does all things with excellence. That includes his salvation and his working in your life, that all of his ways are good and righteous. He is the pinnacle of what goodness is. And when we struggle with this world and our lives, we can rest assured that that this life isn't permanent, right? But there is coming a one that is. There will be a day where it will be all complete. And the only thing that we ever experience is complete goodness and kindness for eternity. I like what J.C. Ryle, I'm going to end with this quote. It's just a great reminder and fits well with everything that the text has taught us. I quote him by saying, Let us remember as we look forward to the days yet to come. We may not know what they may be. They may be, they may be bright or dark, many or few. But we do know. But we do know that we are in the hands of the one who does all things well. Amen. Father, we thank you for the morning. Thank you for the joy it is to come and to worship you. Time and time again, you display your goodness and kindness in this gospel. You display your deity. Only the fool would walk away from hearing the truth and say, you know what, I don't know about Jesus. Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. You're the only one that can only redeem and reconcile a sinful man to a holy God. You're the only one that can save the soul by your atonement on the cross, through your resurrection and conquering death, through the fact of your ascension, you and your truth is all right and all good. Father, I pray for our hearts this week that that we would be drawn to the goodness and kindness of Christ. That we would cling to what is good and run away from evil. We would hold fast to your truth and not waver. Thank you for all that you're doing within our life and within the church. We pray that you're your goodness and your kindness will continue to be displayed in your people's lives. May you draw people unto your salvation. May people be saved and rejoice. We pray this in the one who makes the deaf 
hear. Who makes the mute speak. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll, we'll close in song. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.